The international nuclear industry is always seeking to expand, usually at the expense of people who live near the proposed site of a new reactor. So in India, as protests keep growing against six, count them six, proposed new nuclear reactors, and then you hear about India's nuclear macro problems, which include... We have also problems in India. India's specific safety issues, like India lacks an independent nuclear regulator. India completely lacks a safety culture. Nukes without a safety regulator? <laughs> well, when you hear a legitimate concern like that, but the government doesn't seem to get that this is a real problem, you are clearly in the seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, Two completely different interviews with two terrifically wonderful people. We talk with Kumar Sundaram, editor at Dianukes.org, and a brilliant activist in India with a truly international perspective. Then we revisit Sean Bonner of SafeCast, who was one of the earliest interviews on Nuclear Hot Seat. SafeCast is an international, volunteer-centered organization devoted to open citizen science for the environment. They will teach you how to build your own radiation monitor and hook it up to the free international SafeCast database, which records and posts background radiation in real time. Why is this important? How does it work? And will I ever have a soldering iron in my hands to build a monitor? Stay tuned. We will also have Numbnuts of the Week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, activist shoutouts, and more honest nuclear information than top security clearance-deprived Jared Kushner will be allowed to look at ever again. All of this coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, February 27, 2018, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off in Japan this week, where Tokyo Electric Power Company announced yesterday, February 26th, that the amount of groundwater flowing into the basement of the Fukushima Daiichi Reactor Buildings 1 and 2 began to increase in February and temporarily nearly quadrupled, and nobody knows why. At the site of the triple meltdown, Groundwater flows into the basements of the buildings and mixes with contaminated water, meaning radioactive contaminated water, leading to an increase in new radiologically contaminated water. That which isn't captured and stored on site is released into the Pacific Ocean, only 10 kilometers or 6 miles away from where 
flavor seaweed is grown to make salty, crunchy seaweed snacks currently for sale in Japan. Fukushima Prefecture is also exporting fruit, especially peaches, to Southeast Asia. According to the news, contamination fears have dissipated, but that doesn't mean the radiation has. Last Friday, February 23rd, South Korea said it will appeal the World Trade Organization's decision against bans on imports of Japanese fishing products that the country put in place after the Fukushima nuclear meltdowns. The government said in a statement that the appeal was meant to protect public health and safety and said it will maintain its existing regulations on imports of Japanese seafood. But the Geneva-based World Trade Organization accepted Japan's complaint, saying South Korea's policies violated the trade body's rules, were discriminatory, and served as a trade barrier. You've got that right. They put up a barrier to trade in possibly radiologically contaminated food. In 2013, South Korea banned imports of all fishery products from eight Japanese provinces near Fukushima. China also banned seafood and other agricultural products from Fukushima and nine other prefectures, including Tokyo. Taiwan, Hong Kong, Macau, Singapore, Russia, and the Philippines also banned seafood and other agricultural products from Fukushima and surrounding prefectures. And all this pressure to stuff Fukushima food down the throats of the world is in service to the 2020 Olympics and creating the illusion that everything in Fukushima and Tokyo and Japan is just peachy keen and perfect when logic would suggest it is not. And now... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. According to an announcement ballyhooed in that mouthpiece for nuclear propaganda, World Nuclear News, TEPCO, Tokyo Electric Power Company, has set its sights on global expansion and aims to become an innovative global energy and technology company. This according to its president, Tomiyaka Kobayakawa. He said, Our main mission is guaranteeing the delivery of a stable supply of low-cost electricity to customers. No! Your main mission must be to clean up the global contaminated radioactive mess you made at Fukushima Daiichi. But the tone-deaf President Kobayakawa continued by stressing that the focus on the future will not come at the expense of TEPCO's obligations to its past. Of the damaged triple meltdown at Fukushima Daiichi, which, by the way, he never said the word meltdown because they never do, Kobayakawa affirmed the corporate mission to rebuild communities and restore the trust of the residents, including efforts to support the sale of products from Fukushima. Dude, that is cover-up based on image and illusion, not reality. We'll deal with the reality of Fukushima in next week's show. But your mealy-mouthed attempt to set TEPCO up as some kind of international energy power when you can't even clean up the mess you've already made is why you, Tomoaki Kobayakawa of TEPCO, are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of the week. Here in the U.S., 
Residents living near landfill sites in the St. Louis area where radioactive waste has been stored filed lawsuits last Tuesday, February 20th, seeking compensation, claiming negligence in handling materials they said were some of the most dangerous on earth. Two lawsuits seeking class action status were filed in St. Louis County Court for sites that include the Westlake Landfill in Bridgeton, Missouri, and an area near the Coldwater Creek in that same county. Among the ten defendants are Republic Services, Exelon Corporation, and Cotter Corporation. The lawsuits contend, quote, Defendants treated these hazardous, toxic, carcinogenic, radioactive wastes with about the same level of care that a reasonable person might give to common household garbage, dumping it without authority from the state of Missouri and in violation with the law. We will be following this story in the coming weeks. The National Nuclear Security Administration announced an environmental assessment to increase by 10 times the amount of plutonium used in the radiological laboratory at Los Alamos National Laboratory. This in support of expanded plutonium pit production for future nuclear weapons design, despite the fact that the U.S. already has some 15,000 pits stored at the Pantex plant near Amarillo, Texas, and independent scientists have concluded that plutonium pits last a century or more without a prescribed use-by date. But hey, when it comes to this administration and nukes, the more's the merrier. The Trump administration's nuclear posture review, released earlier this month, calls for the development of new, 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 low-yield nuclear weapons. A military strategy aimed at providing limited use of nuclear weapons. Because, as Trump said, what use is having nuclear weapons if you can't use them? 16 U.S. senators have signed a letter to Trump basically saying, as regards nuke, don't touch it, it's evil. Over to France, where on February 22nd, the French government mounted a military-style assault on a small community of anti-nuclear activists who had been watchdogging and living on a site for the country's proposed high-level radioactive waste dump near the village of Bray. As many as 500 armed gendarmes in riot gear moved in at dawn with bulldozers, trucks, helicopters, drones, and chainsaws to confront about 15 occupiers. When it comes to nuclear, they just love their overkill. At Calandra in Australia's Queensland, a massive radon spike was detected that reached 10 picocuries per liter of air. This happened on February 24, 2018. At the time of the largest spike, humidity hit 80%, and there were intermittent showers passing through, so it looks like this was a rainout. Originating source of the radiation is not yet known. Finally, India has been in discussion with Westinghouse since 2005 to build six AP-1000 nuclear reactors. After protracted negotiations and concerns on nuclear liability, Westinghouse had agreed to work towards finalizing the contractual arrangements by June of 2017. However, the process stalled after Toshiba Corporation declared bankruptcy and decided to move out of the reactor building business. Meanwhile, the second site for constructing additional Russian reactors in Andhra Pradesh at the village in Kovada has yet to be finalized. Various factors such as land type, earthquake potential, availability of water all need to be factored in. 
Given that it is a coastal site, there are other parameters. Yes, but what about the people? What about their lives, their livelihood, their health? That's what our first guest today is going to address. And we'll have that interview for you in just a moment. But first, let's face it. Most mainstream media pays only fleeting attention to a story about nuclear anything, and only when it bobs to the top of the news cycle. That's why you and so many others who want to be in the know turn to Nuclear Hot Seat for your nuclear news. Everything that's reported here is researched, verifiably sourced, and footnoted, even if it is delivered with more than a little attitude, I will confess. Nuclear Hot Seat provides nuclear stories with continuity and context, along with interviews that are held with genuine experts who do not go along with the radioactive industry's party line. In order to provide you with this information every week, we incur costs. And without your support, Nuclear Hot Seat would not be able to continue following this onslaught of nuclear stories. So if you're grateful for the news, the background information, and insights you get from the show, help us to keep going. Make a donation so we can meet our expenses and you can keep hearing the news. You can do so by going to NuclearHotSeat.com and clicking on the big red donate button. And for those of you on a budget, and let's face it, is there anyone today who isn't on a budget? We've set up an easy, inexpensive way for you to help us out. You can buy Nuclear Hot Seat a monthly cup of Java, said the show, a monthly $5, which, let's face it, is the equivalent of a cup of coffee and a nice tip to the barista. We won't be buying any overpriced coffee with your donation. It will be helping us meet the show's many expenses. You can make this sustaining donation easily by going to NuclearHotSeat.com and clicking on the big green donate button. Please do what you can and know that whatever you do to help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Here's the first of this week's featured interviews. I maintain contact with activists from around the world, but I rarely get to meet the more distant ones in person. Thus, it was a real treat when Kumar Sundaram, a prominent Indian anti-nuclear activist, came to Los Angeles for a too-brief visit. Kumar is editor at Dianuke.org, and I find him knowledgeable, articulate, and someone with a genuine worldview as well as an understanding of nuclear issues that includes politics, law, liability, and humanity. We spoke on February 17, 2018, in my living room, without the interference caused by long-distance computer telephone gobbledygook. And we were able to discuss upcoming anti-nuclear protests in India. Kumar, first of all, thanks so much for being here with us on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you so much. I've been following your show since the beginning. It's one of the most remarkable initiatives that we need in post-Fukushima world. So I'm glad to be on this show again. Thank you. Tell us about the most recent protests in India and why they were against Westinghouse. This week, the senior officials of Westinghouse visited India to revive, resuscitate this project, nuclear project, on the western coast of India. It's called Kovada. 
They are building six reactors of AP one thousand design, and there has been ongoing protest on the ground for several years. In the most recent visit, the officials tried to push this deal, and based on the objections that have to do with safety, that have to do with liability, that have to do with loss of livelihood. Tens of thousands of people in India have been resisting this project since day one. So this week we had a massive protest. So there was protest, there was press uh, conference on the ground, and we had on Dianuke an international petition which was signed by more than thousand people. People from across the world signed it, and they said no to this nuclear project. So this week the protest was against Kovada nuclear power project in India. Tell us more about this project at Covada and what makes it so dangerous. American corporations Westinghouse and GE were allotted by the Indian government one site each. Westinghouse had originally got a site called Mithiwisdi, which is in the Gujarat state, which is on the other side or the other coast, and GE Hitachi were given originally this site, which is Covada. What happened in these ten years, and this deal happened in two thousand eight, and now we are talking in two thousand eighteen. So what happened in between? There was massive protest in in Mithiwisdi, and Westinghouse had to wind up its project from there. Also, India's National Green Tribunal, which is a special uh, judicial body looking at environmental issues, cancelled the environmental impact assessment clearance for this project in Mithiwisdi. and the nuclear power corporation had to cancel the whole project now westinghouse has been shifted to kovada this site was originally given to ge general electric they pulled it out they pulled out of the project because they said we will not pay liability so based on their uh, reservations about paying nuclear liability to indian citizens in case of a potential nuclear accident ge had pulled out so the same site for which uh, a different design a different technology was initially planned and all these clearances including site selection etc were given to ge without any new homework and new assessment or comprehensive environmental impact clearance uh, westinghouse has been given the same site and people they were fighting originally against ge but now since last year after this new announcement they are fighting against the westinghouse so what is unchanged is both india and us have strong interest in pursuing uh, big reactors in india and people have been objecting because this design is untested as you know in us in the us the ap1000 design has run into trouble including safety questions by the regulator similarly wherever like in china this week china delayed the commissioning of ap1000 by further 6 months so there have been intermittent delays in china and other places where ap1000 design is being built we have also problems in india uh, india specific safety issues like india lacks an independent nuclear regulator india completely lacks a safety culture our atomic energy commission operates directly under the prime minister office pmo and because it also produces the nuclear weapons it has acquired a shield of secrecy so it disallows and routinely rejects any uh, right to information questions by the citizens groups and by journalists and so on 
So Indian nuclear establishment is completely non-transparent, inefficient, unaccountable. And we do not, as I said, we do not have an independent nuclear safety regulator. What we have is a body which is called Atomic Energy Regulatory Board. It depends on the Atomic Energy Commission both for its funding and its human resource. So these are the questions and more importantly, people on the ground. There are farmers, there are fisherfolk who have been living there for centuries and it's a matter of their livelihoods. They are going to lose their traditional lifestyle, traditional livelihoods and they'll end up becoming migrant labor in big cities in real estate and construction business and this is not something that they want so they are not fighting for better compensation for their land they have just said we do not want this reactor and you know in typical indian village only few people own the land most people in a village are landless labor service provider to the village and to the agrarian farming these people will be completely at loss because no compensation will be given to them so the local protests have been really strong and they have raised some really important questions of livelihood, safety, and it's a question of democracy. In place of listening to these voices, responding to them, and at least having some democratic consultation, the government has completely bulldozed uh, these objections. And so much so that in India, anti-nuclear movements have been labeled anti-national. So uh, when we talk about anti-nuclear protests in India, these are very difficult protests. But people have been fighting in a very resilient and strong manner. The people in Jaitapur are planning a big protest on March 11, which is, of course, the anniversary of Fukushima. That's when the president of France, Emmanuel Macron, visits India. Why is his presence sparking such an action? There, again, we have a big nuclear project coming up in Jaitapur. The Jaitapur nuclear power project will be world's largest nuclear power project. It will be 9,900 megawatts. It will have six EPRs, European pressurized reactors, of 1,650 megawatt each. And these reactors are again untested. So the only place they are building is uh, one in Flamaville in France itself. And there, the French regulator, the ASN, has raised serious objections about the safety and vulnerability including the fact that the French regulator ASN has raised questions about reactor pressure vessel of this particular design. And Arriva has got into trouble in Finland, which is another place where they are constructing the same design. So it's particularly because of the failure and cost overruns and time overruns of the EPR designs under construction in Finland, China and UK, Hinkley Point, that the French nuclear industry has tanked. But still, it is trying to push for Jaitapur project because it's trying to recover from the crisis. And we in India are saying a big no to Jaitapur project. It's being set up in the most ecologically fragile region of India, the Konkan, which is just a few hours from Mumbai. And it's a very densely populated area. Here again, you have farmers, tens of thousands of them, and fisherfolk. And it's, it's one of the 10 world's biodiversity hotspots. So you have best Alfonso mangoes coming from Jaitapur. You have cashew nuts. You have such nice agriculture and then the traditional communities living and dependent on this ecology. 
where this power plant is being built. It's ironical that on the seventh year, and I will not call an anniversary because the accident in Fukushima is still going on, uh, on the seventh year of an ongoing accident which is taking a turn for the worse, the French president is visiting India to push for such a mammoth, destructive, dangerous, eco-destructive project. So people in India are gearing up to welcome the French president with strong protest. And we hope that people across the world will join us in solidarity. What can the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat do to help support you in the work that you are doing? We would urge you to spread the word. When protests greet uh, Emmanuel Macron, we would urge you to spread the petition, the photographs. We urge you to amplify our voices because any further support from foreign countries means that our government calls us anti-national and foreign funded and so on. So I think solidarity is the best support that we are looking forward to. We'll do our best to provide it. Kumar Sindaram, it has been great having you as a guest on more than one level here with Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you so much, Libby. Thank you. That was Kumar Sundaram, Indian anti-nuclear activist and editor at Dianuke.org. Now, have you ever wondered what the radiation levels might be in your local area? And how long would it take for you to get this information? And could you trust any information that you got or not? Have we got an answer for you? It's SafeCast, an international volunteer-centered organization devoted to open citizen science for the environment. What does that mean? After the devastating earthquake and tsunami, which struck eastern Japan on March 11 of 2011, and the subsequent meltdown of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, Accurate and trustworthy radiation information was publicly unavailable. SafeCast was formed in response. The organization's mission is to provide citizens worldwide with the tools they need to inform themselves and others by gathering and sharing accurate environmental data in an open and participatory fashion. Our next guest explains a whole lot more about exactly what that means. Sean Bonner is co-founder and global director of SafeCast, as well as an associate professor at Keough University, a visiting researcher with the MIT Media Lab's Center for Civic Media, and a long list of impressive credentials that are far more than I could possibly get to here. He spoke with us on Sunday, February 25, 2018, from his new home in Tokyo. Sean Bonner, it's so great to have you back with us here on Nuclear Hot Seat. Yes, thanks so much for having me back again. Let's orient people who may not be familiar with SafeCast. Tell us what is it and how did it get started? Sure. So SafeCast started just after the earthquake and resulting nuclear meltdown in Fukushima back in March 11th in 2011. And it started as a reaction to there not being any data available uh, for normal people to find out what was going on in their area. So specifically people in Fukushima, but people outside of Fukushima or people with friends and family in Japan or you know any sort of nearby area, there was just a lot of questions and no answers for this at all. So I and a number of people came together and created what became SafeCast. It was initially just a group of people trying to solve a problem. We designed a hardware and software platform for people to collect research grade radiation background data 
and publish it all to a central data set, which we then publish out into the public domain. So anyone can access it, anyone can verify it, anyone can double check it. This data was used in redefining the evacuation zones just after the earthquake. And what we realized was that data such as this was not only not available in Japan, but also not available anywhere else in the world. So it very quickly spread from a Japan project to a global project. And we now publish the largest data set of radiation background data that's ever existed. It's just shy of 90 million data points now. And again, this is all public domain data. And early last year, we began publishing air quality data as well. Uh, again, this data set is completely global. It's from over 100 countries around the world. And uh, every continent, there's over, I think, about 3,000 volunteers right now with devices out carrying them around every day, collecting uh, readings and submitting them back to us. And we just continue to, to do our thing and see, see what more we can cover. When you say that in Japan, this data was used to reconfigure the evacuation zones, was that the government reconfigured it because of your data? It's a little bit questionable exactly who and what and all of this stuff, but the timeline that we know that's confirmable in every possible way is that the evacuation zones were set as perfect radiuses around the plant. We released our data showing that there was heavily contaminated areas outside of the evacuation zone, as well as not very contaminated areas well within the evacuation zone. Very shortly after our data was released, a number of articles were released showing other data sets that confirmed this. And then just after that, the evacuation areas were reconfigured to align with the data that we publish and, and others publish. So our data was published prior to the changes. So it was certainly used but you know, we don't necessarily have a, this person used this data on this day. We just know that our data was published before the changes were made and was used in the process. Well, information is power, and you have made it very clear that SafeCast is about information. You state very clearly on the website that SafeCast is neither pro-nuclear nor anti-nuclear. It is pro-data. Tell us what you mean by that especially when you're talking about radiation, but uh, certainly when you're talking about any kind of other uh, contaminant or environmental factor or anything, these tend to be very polarizing topics. And it's very quickly, very easy for someone to disregard information because it's coming from a source that they don't like or a history or something along these lines. And this was something that we saw very drastically with radiation once we started getting into it and we were asking questions and every answer we would get was along the lines of well if it's coming from this side it's this and if it's coming from that side it's that and we've we felt that that was incredibly problematic especially if you're talking about the safety of people or you know if someone's trying to decide whether they should evacuate or whether they should move back to an area that had been previously evacuated or any of these kinds of questions and so we decided that First and foremost, we weren't really qualified to take a position in this. We didn't have enough information to make a, we hadn't been studying this prior to it, but what we did know was data and we did know about public domain and we did know about access to research grade information being useful to people and decided that this was, this was gonna be our mission. We were going to create data that anybody, regardless of their political view, could verify all the way down to the source, could trust, and now there could be new discussions held because people with completely different viewpoints could all agree that this data was reliable. 
what is the earliest data that we have or that exists regarding background radiation levels? I mean, do we have any sense of what was considered normal before the first three atmospheric A-bomb blasts, uh, Trinity, Hiroshima, and Nagasaki? I'm not really sure what the very earliest readings were. One of the big issues is that prior to Fukushima, very specifically, there weren't a lot of standards being used for things. And so there's lots of different readings from different places that are reported in different ways on different equipment, some of which is classified. It's very hard to sort of compare apples to oranges with most of the stuff prior to Fukushima. So I'm not comfortable saying, you know, this is the earliest thing because maybe there's something else that's just, you know, kind of out of my spectrum on that. But I know that things were most often reported in really, really big averages as opposed to independent readings, which is what we, what we really focused on after that. So basically, we don't have baseline readings before the atmospheric bomb blasts began or even really consistently before Fukushima began. Yes and no. I mean, there's data out there. The, the, the question is, you know, how reliable you consider that data or if you consider that data to be sort of averaged beyond usefulness or any of those things. I mean, I'm not a nuclear historian, so to speak, so I can't get into the fine nitty gritty on every bit of it. But there's lots of old data sets. It's just whether they're at all useful in any way or whether they're so obsolete that, you know, they're not even worth the paper they're printed on. And that says a lot that it would be printed on paper as opposed to being <laughs> digital. Yes. So in terms of reliability, that's what SafeCast has been focused on. Mm -hmm. Tell us about your monitors. What is it that makes them so good or so consistent or so different, if they are, from the monitors that people are walking around with in their hands or attached to their phones? The big difference... I would say is more in our system than in our and then in our hardware specifically although i can i can speak to that in a little bit most other systems sort of begin with requiring you to trust something uh, they would begin with you requiring you to either trust the hardware or trust the network or trust the company that's provided it to you or any of that and we very specifically don't want any of that we don't want you to trust us we don't want you to trust our equipment we don't want you to trust anybody else using the system we want to provide enough things that you can look it up yourself and verify every bit of it. So we don't want to ever be in a situation where we're saying, you know, just trust that it works because the reason it works is because you don't trust any of that. So we are using industry standard two inch pancake sensors in all of our devices. So every single device we have uses the exact same sensor. All of the devices are sensitive to alpha, beta and gamma with the two inch pancake sensor. And additionally, some of our static sensors have energy compensated tubes that only detect gamma for any time when we wanna do a comparison against that. But very specifically, we publish all of the plans, all of the hardware, all of the software. So anybody can look at exactly how the devices are built, how they are working, what software is doing, what calculations where. And then all of the data that comes from them is also published in a completely raw format, as well as visualizations and things that are sort of calculated from it. Uh, but the absolute raw, straight off the sensor information is available to anybody. So anybody can go in and double check every bit of it, which is especially important for researchers uh, or scientists or something who would not be happy with just this reading, but want to understand exactly how the reading was determined. So we provide all of that. And then 
we put it into the public domain so that there's no license restriction on how people do anything with it. So nobody is held back or limited from using our data in any kind of research or in any kind of uh, reporting or anything that they're doing. It's all free and available out there for anybody to use. Those are really the, the prime differences. There's other sensors that you know someone might have that's a cheap sensor or something that they're not going to get any of that information on and they're going to sort of just have to rely on the fact that, well, we hope that whoever built this knew what they were doing. We don't want to ever, ever rely on that. Where do these monitors come from? Who manufactures them? And how do you make them available? At this point, they are built by individuals. They're sold by several different third-party vendors as a kit. We are a nonprofit. We don't sell anything ourselves specifically. What we do is we publish a bill of materials and all of the instructions, exactly how everything should be built, software repositories for the, the code that goes on it, and then third-party distributors out in the world assemble those kits and sell them to people who then build the devices themselves. I think that some of the vendors offer a service where they can build it for you if you're not comfortable soldering a device together. But anybody can build a device in three or four hours without any kind of previous soldering experience. It's a very simple, easy kit to build. So that's part of our design in this is that we want people to actually understand what their devices are doing. And by building it themselves, they get a very firm understanding of how the device works. I'm one of these people who will never solder anything together. I don't care sure. how simple you say it is. It's <laughs> not going to work that way for me. But be that as it may, once this device is together, explain to me how it hooks up to a larger network for readings to be in this data set, in this compilation that you have. The primary workhorse for the SafeCast network and the device that's collected the, the absolute bulk of our data is called the BGIGI Nano. This device has both a SD card on it, a little memory card that all the data is logged to, as well as a Bluetooth chip. So depending on each individual, they may go take readings and then later on uh, with the memory card, just plug it into their computer and upload it through our website. Or for people that have chosen that option, we have a free iPhone or Android app or several different mobile apps that will connect to the Bluetooth and then they can upload the data immediately after they're finished taking a reading with the device. The BGAGI Nano is not a real-time device. It's more of a record the data and then upload the data. We have other devices which are designed specifically as a real-time device to send data constantly primarily from a static location. And those devices are either connected directly to the internet through Ethernet or something, Wi-Fi, or they have cellular chips. So they don't require an independent internet connection and can just send things right over a cellular network to us. Is there somebody who monitors this information as it comes in so that you can spot that there's a spike happening someplace or a problem seems to be occurring in a location? Is that within the ability of SafeCast? Yeah, so we, we actually have several layers of that. We have first and foremost, some computer algorithm that looks at everything that we have in the data set and looks at new data coming in to see that it's sort of in line with what's already there. So because we have such a wide coverage, we, we generally know what to expect from any place. And so if what comes in is in line with that, then it just goes into the next queue. If it seems 
like it's an outlier, it seems too high or too low or something, then it's flagged and moderators are specifically notified that there's an issue with this log that somebody should look at. Regardless of what happens, there's a human who looks at the data, makes sure everything looks as it's supposed to. If there's any kind of a question, can contact the person who submitted it to find out what's going on with it and then hits approve. So before it goes into the data set, it's getting both machine and human to check to make sure things look the way they're supposed to. The reason I was reminded to contact you for this interview is last week on the show, we had Tom Carpenter of Hanford Challenge. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's a lot that's been happening in terms of radiation being found around that site in places where it's really not supposed to be. Yes. And, and he mentioned that not only were there people in the area who were working with the Bigaigi Nano, but now you have a stationary monitor that can be put in place and monitored from there. I believe it's called the SolarCast. What is different about that and how is that being deployed? That's true. So with the, with the Bigaki Nanos, our real interest was mapping out as much area as we possibly could. We wanted to cover as much ground as possible. But as time goes on and as we continue to cover ground, we became more interested in other areas of interest, whether it's Hanford or uh, other nuclear power plants, just something that we wanted to keep a constant eye on. We decided that we needed some sensors that were sending in data from the same location all the time. Our first foray into that was a few years ago, a device called the PointCast, but this was very cumbersome in that it required power and it required internet and required sort of a custom installation for every single one that we built. So this is not necessarily a scalable device or something that we could just make a whole bunch of and get out of there pretty quickly. And so that's how we came to the idea to build a solar cast. And so the first solar casts that we deployed last year were radiation and air quality sensors, and they are completely solar powered and cellular. So these send data and run on their own. You basically just have to turn them on and put them outside and, and then you can forget about them and they just do their own thing. These ones are big and expensive and you know we sort of made them as a proof of concept for what we wanted to do. And it was shortly after we made those that we began talking more in depth with Tom. We had, we had had previous conversations about other things, but we started to realize that there would be something valuable and useful to people like Tom to have a smaller version of the solar cast that just focused on the radiation and was still solar and cellular, but people could sort of just sprinkle them around to places and then they could send data in on their own. So from the SolarCast, we developed a smaller version called the SolarCast Nano. And that's what we've just sent a few of to Tom. So we really designed that with Hanford as the primary use case. But of course, that's something that's useful to many other people as well. So it's a little larger than a Bigaigi Nano, a little larger than the mobile device, but it can mount on a tripod or can hang from a tree or wherever it needs to be, but it runs completely on its own with the sun and sending data to us via cell phone. Have you had any contact with people in North St. Louis as regards the Westlake landfill situation or Coldwater Creek about utilizing either the smaller handheld version, the Bigaigi Nano, or this larger solar cast? I couldn't tell you specifically. Um, I would have to dig into the database to see what's around. I, I don't recall any specific conversations about that 
with myself, but that doesn't mean that another member of the SafeCast team hasn't been speaking to somebody about that. We have a number of different people that sort of have different contacts and, and help coordinate with different people. I don't do every bit of it myself. One of the things I was floored about when I went to your website is that I saw that you had data published for the fires, the wildfires we had last December in Southern California, including my neighborhood fire that I was in mandatory evacuation from. How did that come about? How did we get these monitors in Southern California to record this information? So yeah, that actually worked out really well for everyone because in the middle of last year, we deployed our first batch of air quality sensors. These also all had radiation sensors on board, but it was really our sort of first foray into deploying some air quality sensors out into the world to see what sort of data came back. And at this point, I was living in Los Angeles, so this was sort of just my backyard. I just reached out to volunteers and people in the area to see who might be able to host a sensor. And we just scattered them around and started bringing in data from about August of last year. And so when the fires started to break out, a number of these sensors were already perfectly positioned and we were able to reach out to other people and just sort of drive a sensor right over to people who were able to put them in evacuation areas, uh, you know, people in, in their yard where they were supposed to leave and just leave a bunch of these around. So this was a perfect example for us to see what having sensors in place before a situation comes up looks like, because that's really been our hypothesis for quite a few years now is that we don't want to just be reactionary. We want to have sensors that are there and reliable and reporting so that as something happens, people know what's going on immediately. They're not scrambling later on to find out what happened to them last week or last month. And so, uh, yeah, so those sensors were there for that. It sounds like it would be important, if not crucial, to have at least one, if not more of these in proximity to every nuclear reactor, every dump site, all the different places where problems pop up and we have a hard time pinning it down because of the lack of data. We can't prove it. And this would allow us to do so and do it in real time. Yeah, exactly. That's what we are hoping to move towards. We have sensors around Fukushima, obviously, specifically to do that. We hope that that model is something that we can replicate pretty much any place else that might be of interest. What will it take to support this program and move it forward with all speed? Well, I think that for that piece, really the only issue is funding to build the devices. So that's sort of where we take little steps forward all the time is we find a foundation or a grant or some sort of a community group or something that wants to support deployment of devices in their area. And we work with them to build those devices and then deploy them and then move on to the next area to try to do that. So it's really um, just a matter of finding funding in each specific area because often funders want to support a specific area, not just anything around the world. I mean, we've had some funders that want to support anything around the world, which is fantastic. But for this kind of a plan and going forward, the trick is really just identifying people or foundations or groups in areas near plants or dumps or something that should be monitored and working with them to deploy sensors there. Too bad it's not a commercial property or it would be perfect for Shark Tank. <laughs> yeah. If 
any of the nuclear hot seat listeners are interested in getting involved, possibly raising money for putting in monitors in their areas, near their nearby nuclear problem areas, what can they do? How should they contact SafeCast and what are the steps? So we are very easily contactable through the website. Our email address is there. We also have a contact form or you know, any number of other ways for people who want to get in touch. Sometimes people prefer one form of communication over another. We have every way that you might want to get in touch with us is on the website. And we try to work very closely with communities. We think of ourselves as community-centric as opposed to device-centric or project-centric or something like this. So we want to work with the communities and find the solution that's best for them. Typically, this is a combination of mapping out the area to see what it looks like right now and then getting in a couple uh, sensors in place so that you can see what changes going forward if that's what you're looking for. But really, it all kind of hinges on having one or two people who are kind of committed to be the local people in charge of it because I can't manage something in some city far away from where I'm at. But if I have one person in that city who is committed to help making it happen, then that makes all the difference. So it's really about really about having that that first connection that makes everything else happen. And that's what Nuclear Hot Seat is really good at doing, making that one connection. So if any of the listeners are interested in getting this kind of monitoring in place in your community, we will have a link up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 349. And you can also contact through the website of the organization, which is safecast.org. Do I have that right? That's correct. And also, if you're just curious and just want to see what's going on, uh, map.safecast.org or the SafeCast application on iOS or Android all have our complete data set mapped out visually so you can see if there's data that already exists from where you're at. Sean, this is such a crucial piece of what has been needed that SafeCast is providing with this monitoring and with our ability to know instead of guess, instead of just have suppositions. Once we know the truth, then it can be acted upon and we can put pressure on elected officials and appointed officials to do their job. And we've got the numbers to back it up. Exactly. So for all of the work that you have been doing and that you continue to do, I want to thank you. Thank you so much. It's been an interesting few years, to say the least, but we're glad that our work is useful to people. Well, it's not only useful to people, I think it's extremely eye-opening, and I think it's going to prove crucial as we move into the future. For now, I want to thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks again. Sean Bonner of SafeCast. Check out the group and learn how to build your own SafeCast-compatible radiation monitor so you can join the ranks of citizen scientists literally around the world. Just go to safecast.org, and we'll also have that link up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 349. Activist shout-out! Several things for you to do where you can get involved in your own kind of activism. Tim Judson the executive director of Nuclear Information and Resource Service, or NIRS, wrote to us saying, The governor of Japan's Fukui province approved the restart of two reactors at the Ui nuclear plant near Kyoto, 
only a few hundred miles from the Fukushima nuclear disaster. This took place in the face of much public opposition, and we are supporting the activists of Kyoto as they fight to keep the reactors offline. He's asking for our signatures on a petition, and a link to it will be up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, episode number 349. A list of events commemorating the 7th anniversary of the start of the Fukushima nuclear disaster is available on the website of Hervé Courtois. He's one of the forces behind nuclear-news.com and also his website, deunrenard.wordpress.com. There will be a link up on the website so you can get there. And if you have an event planned, you can let Hervé know so he can add it to the list. Or maybe you can let Hervé know through his website because he's been blocked from Facebook. He did get the message out following my sharing of several posts about the events in Bure, the expulsion of anti-nuclear activists by the gendarme, Facebook has blocked me out indefinitely. If anyone knows a way to get through to Facebook and tell them to knock it off, please let me know and I will pass it along. In the meantime, let's use his website again, dunrenard, D-U-N-R-E-N-A-R-D, dot wordpress, dot com, in order to communicate with him. We still have 28 days, four weeks, one month, left to let the Environmental Protection Agency know what we want done at the Westlake Landfill in North St. Louis, such as full removal of the radioactive waste, relocation of the waste off-site, and an immediate buyout of the homes closest to the radioactive waste. Sounds like a plan. Would that we could get them to follow it. A link to the EPA comment site will be up on our website. Again, it's episode number 349. And my personal shout out to an activist named Pinar, because, hey, how often does one get contacted by an anti-nuclear activist from Turkey? Good to hear from you, and keep listening. Here's today's final thought. Next week, we'll be presenting a very special nuclear hot seat, Voices from Japan, the annual Fukushima anniversary special. This year, it's particularly powerful as we focus on child thyroid cancer rates and the difficulties accessing honest information on this issue because of difficulties and roadblocks put in place by the Japanese government and the nuclear industry. I mean... You wouldn't want to sully people's desire to travel to Japan to attend the 2020 Tokyo Radioactive Olympics, would you? That's what the families of Fukushima are up against. And that's what we address in three exclusive interviews, translated from the Japanese. Plus, we will provide context for the issues raised in the interviews in talking with Beverly Finlay Kneko of Families for Safe Energy, who is also co-producer of the episode, as she has been every year. It's a complex job, and I'm already a full week into production. What I can tell you is that what I've heard in the interviews has moved me to tears more than once. Truly, these are voices from Japan. It's an annual nuclear hot seat special to let you hear firsthand what is going on regarding Fukushima from the people who are most impacted by this ongoing nuclear disaster. 
I hope you'll choose to give it a listen. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, February 27, 2018. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from Nuclear-News and Sean McGee, deunrenard.wordpress.com and Hervé Courtois, miningawareness.wordpress.com, dianuke.org, reuters.com, beyondnuclear, NEARS, bostonherald.com, kob.com, utilitydive.com, thenews-messenger.com, aljazeera.com, freewashingtonpost.com, beacon.com, shadowproof.com, nhregister.com, christian science monitor, counterpunch.org, energytransition.com, express.co.uk, sciencemag.org, thehindu.com, the soul-dead cubicle drones who can't look themselves in the eye in the mirror when they shave because they're grinding out press releases for World Nuclear News, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and a shout-out to you, yes, you, the Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers who are literally around the world, 123 countries and counting, plus Everyone who's listening on broadcast stations in the U.S. and that network is growing. You are the ones who show your love for life on this planet by being the kick-ass defenders of nuclear truth and supporters of atomic awareness that you are. Thank you for gathering at the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook page and podcast page. And if you haven't yet, be sure to stop by, click like, post, and share. Nuclear Hot Seat theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. Want to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week so you don't miss a single episode? It's easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for the yellow box, we've got everything color-coded there, yellow, and sign up for the weekly email link to the latest show. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2018, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. And if you appreciate weekly, verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to send a donation to nuclearhotseat.com. We will be terrifically grateful when you do. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that the last thing I or anyone involved with the anti-nuclear movement wants to be able to say is, I told you so. So let's get busy and make sure that doesn't happen. Consider that your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.